how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm good, you know. Uh, just quarantined here in my apartment, so yeah. Yeah, apartment in Maryland. Yeah, that's right. So I'm in Baltimore in the city. Um, I've been here about three, uh, three and a half years now. Nah, I'm really liking it. So, yeah. Yeah, I would wonder. It's probably very different than it was before the pandemic, right? Or, or yeah. is the living situation more or less the same? I mean, I guess in a way, like, you know, I'm in the same apartment um, doing the same things day to day, except that now, you know, I don't go out to the bars with my friends or different things. So, you know, but, uh, but well, yeah, it's definitely completely remote. Yeah. So I'm completely remote for work, which is actually really nice. I've come to like that a lot. Um, you know, at first I was skeptical, but my team is sort of distributed anyways. Like there are some people in California and, um, uh, Colorado and stuff. So, um, we already were online for meetings anyways. So it's not a huge change. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I personally like the freedom of remote work. It's uh, it feels more productive. Yeah. Yeah. Like exactly. I mean, I can, you know, you go make lunch or like do whatever, like real quick and like get back to work or if I need to go take a walk because I'm stressed or whatever, like it's really easy to do. And yeah. Uh, I wonder if uh, companies have found a quantifiable way to determine whether or not the work from home has been better. You, you yeah. Know? Yeah. I'm not sure how they uh, like would measure that. Um, I'm, I'm sure like all of the business people are have metrics for like productivity and stuff. Um, so yeah, I'm curious what they've found. Yeah, I, I personally would think that because the the lines between work and home are so blurred, people just go through. You just keep working, and then you realize, oh crap, it's seven o'clock. I should probably stop. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've heard plenty sure. of that going on. Yeah, yeah. So, so then it's an interesting challenge, definitely, with your work life balance. It's different, uh, for sure. Yeah, it, I think it took a little bit of easing into, but I've I've more or less struck the balance that I want to be at. Yeah, absolutely, and. And, you know, now I have more time in my day because I don't have to, like, commute and stuff. So it, it's actually, you know, I've come to really like it. Yeah. What was your commute time? Uh, it wasn't bad. So um, if we get into this, this is uh, kind of my, my hypocritical moment. I do uh, commute to work by car, or at least I did before the pandemic. And so it's only, like, 15 minutes, maybe 20 if there's traffic or something. Um, so it's not too bad. Um, but the, the issue is that like, uh, I live in the city, but then uh, my job is kind of like out in the suburbs. And so I've looked so many times, like trying to figure out what the best way to like take the bus or the light rail or something out there. And it just, it would take like an hour and a half to get out to my job. So I've stuck with the car. Um, yeah. But that's, that's kind of the thing I'm interested in is like uh, how we can improve that. So if I wanted to not take the car. So uh, I definitely want to discuss this with you. The reason why I yeah. even went to the topic of commuting is because I wanted to discuss mm-hmm. this with you. Uh, but before we do that, I want to get mm-hmm. a sense of what's work. What do you, what do, you do? Sure. So um, uh, I guess first I'll preface this by saying like I'm not uh, representing my employer or anything like that. So all I'm saying, I'll just talk about the technology, um, some of the, the cool stuff that I get to work on. Um, so uh, there's this uh, technology called reciprocal quantum logic, RQL. Um, basically it's a, it's a, a type of a digital circuit design. Uh, so like to make a processor, um, but it's using superconductors. And the idea is that you, um, 
create an alternative to like the typical type of processors used to now in your phone or your laptop or whatever is using CMOS, which is like semiconductors. Um, but the superconductors allow you to use, you know, uh, almost, you lose almost no power in the transition of your signals and things. And then um, you can actually um, break out of Moore's law, if you're familiar with that. So uh, there's a lot to unpack there. So yeah, <laughs> CMOS, Moore's law, uh, to, to those who don't know, let's just, just kind of break down of what, what a current processor is at, at whatever level of depth you want to. Sure. And I'm certainly no expert on this. Um, my background is entirely software engineering. Um, and so everything I know about this is basically just picked up from my work the last couple of years working with a bunch of electrical engineers and things. But basically like a, you know, a CMOS processor, it, you know, it's made, built out of like transistors. Um, and so there's, you know, obviously as computing, the computing age has come to fruition, um, processors have gotten uh, faster and faster and computers have gotten smaller and smaller. And this is uh, an effect of Moore's law. Basically, um, you know, for the last, I mean, it, it, we've kind of come to the end of the Moore's law now, but for the last like, you know, 20, 30 years or something, basically every two years, um, you could fit twice as many transistors on the same chip for half the cost. And so that's what it's allowed us to have this, you know, huge boom of processors in everything, smart devices everywhere. We have processors in them. Um, why is it the end? Why is it the so end? we're coming to the end because um, of the the way this technology works? And again, this is the part where I'm not a super expert on. But basically, we've hit, hit the limit. Like the 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 physics behind how these processors work, uh, the, you're reaching the limit around like four gigahertz. Is this you know we keep edging up towards like getting you know eking out more and more performance, but we really can't push past this like plateau. Um, directly like for a, a single core processor but how they've gotten around this is you know like adding more cores and more um parallelization and so that's how you know we are continuing to eke out more performance but again you can only do so much and it's it's limited by how well you can parallelize the uh computations you're trying to run and things um and so there's a ton of work still going on, on the CMOS side to create faster computers and all that but the superconducting technology would theoretically like start a new like boom of maybe it's not exactly following Moore's law, but a similar trajectory where if this technology were to take off, you could create processors, um, you know, much faster and using much less energy because a huge um, bottleneck for processors, CMOS processors is the heat that dissipates from all the energy you're expending, which is why, you know, if you have a big fancy gaming computer or something, you have to have a big uh, cooling system, you know, to keep it working. So, so yeah, so the superconducting thing with, you know, if, if a technology like this, like either RQL or some other superconducting processor technology would allow, um, a, a, you know, a huge boom in processing power again, which would have obviously huge effects for data computation and et cetera. So, so that, that, that's very fascinating. Uh, it's, I always think of this, you know, you're, you're cramming more and more transistors into this smaller and smaller space. And at a certain point, it just gets really hot. And uh, yeah. the heat is on the order of, you know, being able to mess mess up the, the chip, right? Right, right. It'll like happening. melt. Yeah, if you're not taking care of it, the temperature for sure. Yeah, it's super wild. If anyone wants to, you go to your, your desktop computer. I don't think you can easily do this with your laptop. But you go to your desktop computer and just look at your CPU. It's probably mm -hmm. the size 
of half or a quarter of your palm. Yeah. And that's what's really the, the brains behind your computer. It's wild. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. But um, so that's that actually gets into one of the limitations of this. So so RQL, you know, is working on a superconductive metal. Um, so but to be superconducting, it obviously has to be very, very cold. And so um, there's uh, obviously a lot of like overhead or, um, you know, some some work that has to go in to keep it that cold so it stays superconducting and the technology actually works so you know this wouldn't be something that you would actually put into a laptop or put into your phone like the the uh the baseline of like system that you have to create to create the ability to be superconducting would not be something you could carry around on your person um so really uh you know the it would have more of an effect on say like cloud computing and things where right now we have these big data servers that are just massive and they take an insane amount of power to run these data centers. And so, you know, in theory, if we had some type of superconducting technology like this, uh, you could have way more processing power available in the cloud for, you know, way less cost and way less power usage. So I, I want to, again, this is super awesome. I, I actually pretty much follow what you're saying, but there's, uh-huh. there's so much, there's so many cool things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, let, let's just do, uh, let's just start with one of the words that to me is kind of jargony is cloud computing. Right. Okay. My yeah. caricature before I knew anything about software was wait, there's there's some ether and uh I'm it's doing my computation for me. What's that all about? So so how would you how would you sort of break down what cloud computing means? Right. It, it's sort of a buzzword that and honestly it can mean a lot of different things. But uh the way I think of it is is you know, a lot of processing or things that like, if you think of like the algorithm that people talk about for whatever service, whether it's social media or um, different things, it's probably running on the cloud. And so these are like the servers, you know, that live somewhere. All of your social media postings live on some server somewhere in the cloud. And so when like Spotify wants to do your Spotify wrapped at the end of the year, it's doing some calculations based on the data it has stored about you. And like all that's happening in the cloud and then it can, you can easily access it through your Spotify account, um, but also like um, you can you can buy like access to these cloud data servers, um, and you can say if I have a bunch of data I want to crunch, it might take my personal laptop you know hours or days to crunch a huge data set, but I could like send off jobs to the cloud if I buy space on it from you know whatever cloud service, and it will do the computation much faster because they have these huge server farms with just you know immense computing power. And then I think the other way people think of the cloud is usually like storage space. Like they think of their iCloud or their Google Drive or whatever, which is, you know, it still exists in the cloud, but that's just more like storage space, not so much the processing power, but yeah. Yeah, I think it's very easy to sort of lose sight of the fact that you you store some file on your Google Cloud or you, mm-hmm. you upload a file to your Facebook account or whatever it is that kicks off some kind of signal that gets sent to a physical location, right? Yep. It could be decentralized. It could be many physical locations, but there is a building somewhere with a bunch of computers inside of it where that data is being held, right? I think it's yep. very easy for me to forget that sometimes. Yeah, and and that kind of, and that it is easy to forget. And I think a lot of people, you know, obviously most people don't really understand that relationship. And so then you get into this thing where, where you get like those like 
chain posts on Facebook or something. We're saying like, if you don't share this, then you don't own your data and Facebook's going to take, well, you already gave your data to Facebook. It's already on all of their servers, but people feel this like ownership since it's their profile or, but you know, when you post something online, you're, you're putting it out into the world. And sometimes people kind of lose that, that image. I mean, if you just think about it, there's a lot of stuff on the internet and your phone only has so much space. There's no way it's all on yeah. your phone locally. <laughs> Straight exactly. Up. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, or people, oh, people will like, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, go, go ahead. I was just going to say like, people will think like if they delete an app off their phone, then they're like their account's gone and they don't, you know, their data isn't stored anymore. It's like, no, the app is just how you access, you know, the service, but there's the kind of that lack of understanding I think a lot of people have. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, another, I, I just want to drill it in one more time. Use case. I go to Google, I go to google.com. I type in a word into this little bar. What happens? Right. right. This magical instant where, okay, I have everything at, at my disposal. Uh, what, what is the, why is the sky blue, for example? Yeah. Right? And, and it's incredibly complicated like i mean i i have like a sort of a vague idea of like there's a dns server and it and it you know takes the url and it transforms that gets the ip address so then you're talking directly to the server that you need to find the website and like there's all these but then that doesn't even get into all the networking that's happening of how your requests get routed it's very complicated and we don't even think about it which is kind of the beauty of abstraction which is like the you know, that's why computer science is so powerful is because we can kind of ab- abstract these very complex things out and allow just everyday people can use it easily. So, yeah. yeah, I think the best example of abstraction is the car, right? You don't know how it works. There's oh, literally absolutely. an explosion going on inside this, this thing, this metal box that's going 80 miles per hour. But the interface, meaning the steering wheel, the little shifty boy, that's all clear. So you just you can you can kind of get around that's yeah the beauty of yeah that's how all technology you know it, it's it's just a way to make something complex and very powerful easy to use for the masses so yeah that's for sure yeah and i think it, it very easily gets out of control with with data with servers with cloud computing because mm-hmm. what's the signal the, the signal that that we're using is maybe maybe Wi-Fi, maybe it's some EMF, like maybe sorry, like yeah, it's electromagnetic field, right? We can't mm-hmm. see them, we can't even really easily conceptualize them, but they're yeah. they're, they're there. They're everywhere all the time. Yeah, yeah. I remember there, sure. there's some memes that EMFs are bad or something. I'm not sure what what the meme is, but I remember hearing loosely about this. Yeah. <laughs> or like a the whole 5G conspiracy or something, but yeah, yeah, I I literally don't know anything about that, but no, <laughs> I know that it's a thing. All right, let's, yeah. let's go. Let's get back to it. So, okay, we've established that I click a song on Spotify, it kicks off some request to some physical location. That location or many locations sends me back the data to stream the song. That let, let's go to that physical location. There's computers there, right? And yep. your point earlier was because the technology that you're working on requires something called superconducting, right? You, you need mm-hmm. to make it really cold. So to make things really cold probably requires a lot of space, not enough space to put it in your house. Yeah, exactly. So there's kind of that, that overhead. There's like, it's only practical up to some scale. Um, and smaller than that, it's not practical because you would have to have, because you know, it, it does take a lot of power to cool something that cold. Um, but if you have, a ton of 
servers or a ton of chips in there running, then it becomes worth it to, you know, for that initial overhead. Um, at least, you know, that's the idea. Is, is a good example of this uh, uh, Google's sort of quantum computing thing? I've, uh, I've seen news of this and there's this little sort of tiny, maybe called a, a box that's a couple inches by a couple inches. And uh, there's this giant, more or less freezer type infrastructure surrounding it <laughs> to cool it down to a certain point to where it can actually do what it needs to do. Is, is that kind of the image of what's going on? Right, sure. It's a similar idea. Um, since I know, I don't know a lot about quantum, but you know, it also needs to be super cooled like that. Um, so, so similar to that, yeah. Okay, so that makes sense. Uh, I mean, we'll, we'll treat it as an interface because, I mean, I, unless you want to talk about what it means for something to be a superconductor, which I personally don't know about. <laughs> no, I'm not a material science person. I don't. I wouldn't be able let's, to give you a good explanation. Just, <laughs> let's just assume that okay, we currently have the chips that are on our phone, and now there's this thing that you're working on on RQL that makes it faster, uh, but you have to make mm -hmm. it cold. So I guess, uh, what, can, what can you tell me about? How, can you tell me about how it's faster or, or, or what, 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 the, what the three word or three letters in RQL really kind of stand for? Sure. So, um, so let's go with, um, so, so you can actually look up uh, online the, the like thesis papers that, um, Quentin Hare and a couple of other like just crazy smart people uh, published through the University of Maryland. And that's that's the basis of the RQL technology. Um, and so basically RQL, reciprocal quantum um, logic. So let's let's go in reverse order here. The logic um, is, it's actually the same as like regular digital circuits um, from like a CMOS chip or anything where you have um, an AND, like a two input AND gate will take, a, you know, two true or false signals. And if both of them are true, it will pass on to true. And if one, but if either one of them or both of them are false, then it won't. So that's an and function and there's or functions. And, you know, there's the same, it's built out of the same standard uh, digital gates that CMOS is built out of. It's just built using this superconducting circuit, um, which is the quantum part is this, um, I'm not an expert on quantum, but basically this, the superconducting aspect is the quantum aspect. And then the reciprocal is how these signals work. It's not in the typical, like a CMOS circuit works in, I believe the voltage domain. And so, you know, like a higher voltage is a one and a lower voltage is a zero. Whereas RQL works in the like quantum flux domain. And so it works with these SFQ pulses, which are single flux quantum is what it stands for. Um, and basically these, yeah, so these pulses are, are like, um, they're reciprocated, which is where the reciprocal comes from, where there's like a positive pulse and a negative pulse. And uh, so that's where the name comes from. And okay. it's all very complicated. I'm definitely not an expert on it, but um, it allows you to make these chips that are faster because um, of like the, the clock time basically. So on a CMOS chip, you know, your laptop's probably like 2.5, 3.5 gigahertz or something like that. So that's, you know, gigahertz is, you know, the number of cycles that it can compute um, per second. Um, and so this um, style, the way it's clocked is actually uh, able to get many, many more gigahertz basically because the clock is an analog clock. So it's like a sine wave. Whereas in CMOS it's typically a square wave. Um, 
where you know you have like a an, an up pulse and a down pulse so when a gate receives the up pulse it says okay now i'm going to read my inputs and pass on my output to the rest of the circuit um whereas in rql it has this analog like sine wave and so it's it's a little trickier how it triggers and there are these josephson junctions that have to be biased the right way and I don't know if your listeners are interested in that you can go read the paper it's very complicated but it allows you basically to have a much faster uh, circuit yeah i mean so yeah again if you could we, we could probably spend all day trying to understand the difference between those two waves and why why one is better than the other yeah but that's the point right <laughs> right uh, right <laughs> so it's it's a lot faster i mean that that's the objective yeah and uh and uses a lot less power. Both of those yeah. things are very viable. Yeah. So yeah, that, that sounds huge. Uh, and are you, you focus on a particular use case or is this generally pushing forward computation? Um, well, I don't know. That kind of gets into the like motivation of my employer and like <laughs> what they want to do with it, which I can't really speak to. But, um, you know, obviously I would say, you know, if this technology was became fully mature and was like, and, you know, worked the way it, in theory we're, we've been working towards, you know, I, it could, you know, basically, as I was saying, like kind of revolutionize like cloud computing or just anywhere where you need to do big data, which is kind of everywhere now, everything's about processing large amounts of data. So any use case you can imagine where you need to crunch data, you could just do it way faster. Yeah, that seems very useful. Uh, I, I was thinking about this the other day where, you know, your phone currently is a computer, right? It's, it's like a, a supercomputer in your pocket. Yeah. Right. And uh, I, I'm hearing all these things about Apple vertically integrating, right? They're doing mm-hmm. this M1 chip that's somehow related to, yeah, there's all these cool things happening. Uh, one, of, one of the most interesting ones that I'm, I'm sort of hearing of is, okay, you, you can, we have Moore's law. It's we're almost sort of uh, at a place where it's it's a uh, what is the word? It's like sort of plateauing. Plateauing, uh-huh. right? Uh, what's the next step? So you're giving me an example. I think quantum com- computation is another example. Yeah. Another example is actually in terms of the software itself, right? Or 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 the processing of the instructions themselves. You can use some kind of quote neural processing. These are buzzwords, right? right? Yep. Yep. It's it's so fascinating how okay we're physically restricted let's keep going. Let's keep cranking out computation. Exactly. And that's what's been a huge effort the last, you know, 10 or even 20 years, as people have started to realize that we are reaching this end of more laws, that we're getting so creative with these different ways to kind of get around it and continue to improve. Um, even though, you know, physics is basically saying, you know, this is your limit. I, that, that's super awesome. I think uh, one, one thing that I always think about when we all have our phones is what if we could all use them for something better than social media, right? What if we could actually have some kind of decentralized computation that could maybe uh, doing some kind of brute force search on a particular protein that might help some kind of, uh, or cure some kind of disease, right? I feel yeah. like uh, that sort of decentralized structure or sense of computation is possible. It's just sure. not happening. <laughs> yeah, like if you think about, yeah, the amount of computational power that exists in the world, it's insane you know, we, you could use that to crack any number of things, any number of problems. But yeah, it, always, it would have to be all decentralized, like almost like a botnet, if you're familiar with like, hackers usually use a botnet to like, 
um, you know, they hack a ton of different devices and use it to attack something. But if you could have like a distributed network of devices that all work together to accomplish something, maybe that would work. I don't know. Yeah. I'm going to paint a caricature really quick for the distributed network of devices. So sure. more or less what I see it as, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that, okay, there's all these phones. You can kind of, you know, take a giant job, chunk it up into little pieces, throw out those little pieces to each little phone, and then have a place where you collect the response. And then yep. you've done a computation, right? Yep. In your computer, it all happens in, inside itself. But now we're able to do it in this really cool, clever way where we can leverage all this technology. And the protocols exist, right? Protocols mm -hmm. meaning things like the internet. They allow us to share this information. Yep. Man. For sure. Why isn't it happening? It probably is. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's this, uh, there's a lot of efforts. The one that really comes to mind is like Stephen Wolfram's stuff with, uh, hey, let's do this brute force search on these little uh, sort of automata, automata type elements. And uh, maybe we can together do some cool science. I love that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think how people, you know, in a way that is what's happening even inside the data center. Like you know, the data center is just a ton of individual nodes that have some limited processing power. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. Like the technology exists and it's working already basically inside these data centers, routing all this information as the problem and the data is broken into these little chunks and then, you know, consolidated back together again. Um, but then, you know, there's a limit on that. And if, yeah, like you're saying, if we could harness all of the many, many processing powers out there could, could absolutely be even bigger. Yeah, and I'm here for it. I'm here. I'm here. For my sure. phone. For anyone who's listening who wants to use my phone to do this presentation, <laughs> just hit me up. <laughs> yeah, then um, it just gets into all the privacy issues. But uh, but those are big ones. I think that's out. that's sort of front and center today, and it's becoming more and more central to 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 uh, our attention because mm -hmm. I am really, if I'm on Facebook, say, I'm putting all of my images, all of my content, and somehow they can use that to kind of pinpoint me as a person that can give me some sort of archetypical uh, you know, label and yeah. uh, sort of target me in terms of maybe ads that way. I yeah. The fact that you can do that spooks a lot of people out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and it is scary. And it, uh, Google, you can go, I forget the name of the website, but you can ask Google like, hey, what do you know about me? How are you targeting ads towards me? And it will give you a list of things like, I forget, it's been a while since I looked at mine, but like it accurately knew that I was like a white male that enjoyed technology and sports and video games. And like, and then it kept getting like more specific and like, you know, Google knows a ton of stuff about me and they make a ton of money off of targeting ads towards me with that. So it, it's, uh, it's spooky, but also I think there's this balance between all of this, these free services I get access to that vastly improve my life. So is it worth it to, you know, sell my private data to have access to these? And, you know, some people view it the other way that, um, you know, these corp these big tech companies have the upper hand. And so really you should be getting paid not only in these access to these services, but you should be being paid like little money for your personal data because they make so much money off of it. Um, so it's an interesting thought, like, you know, how much is my data worth? I don't know. Yeah, it's super intractable, honestly. If you were to ask me how much I would pay to use Google as a service, I don't know. 
I've, I've, I would say for a fact, Google, Google has changed my life, right? Absolutely. For yeah, a fact, I think it is, it may, it's changed everybody's life probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the amount of uh, very pinpointed specific research you can do very, <coughs> oh geez, very quickly, unreal. Yeah. Like never before. And honestly, I mean, if you think of it, you know, how many different search engines there are, we kind of just use Google because generally it's accepted to be the best. But if you had to like pay for it, then maybe there'd be more competition and you would look at other search engines and say, well, this one's not quite as good, but maybe it's cheap. And then maybe we'd have more competition between search engines. Who knows? It could be, could be actually better in the long run. Yeah, there, there is something to competition. There really is. Uh, there's also something to uh, monopolies. I, I, whenever I think of monopolies, I go to AT&T Bell Labs and uh, all the <laughs> crazy cool stuff that's still being used that they did. But does that really yeah. justify the fact that they're a monopoly? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough question for sure. Yeah. This, this is, oh man, this just kind of gets me, gets me flowing. I'm, I know. I'm, thinking about, <laughs> I'm thinking about graphs now. All I think about is graphs. I've been using something called mind maps recently where the whole concept is a graph, right? A cyclic graph. You, you start with a node in the middle with some idea concept and you just keep drawing edges and more nodes and then you can somehow represent your associative memory. And oh, it's wow. super cool. It's super yeah. useful. I'm gonna keep doing it. But network, internet, computers, all graphs. Everything's a graph. <laughs> yeah, so much of computer science is just graph theory. And and even if it's not directly a graph, it's often like the most um, performance, um, like the most efficient way to represent it as a graph. And like. Everything's graphs for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, man. All right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I got to bring myself <laughs> back down because I'm just thinking about graphs now. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit more about sort of you as, as a person, right? You, you, you mentioned sure. something about com, uh, commuting, right? You said, uh, yeah. minutes, I don't want to be, uh, they don't want to seem hypocritical, but, uh, you know, it would take an hour or something to commute. Let's yeah. dig into that. Why? So what's the deal? I guess if I start at the beginning, um, the, the reason I, I've gone down this rabbit hole is climate change. And, and once I kind of realized, you know, once I listened to all of the climate scientists and, and understood like what they're saying the next 20, 30, 40 years are going to look like, you know, it's kind of hard not to hear that and kind of freak out and like, okay, um, we need... I need to change my lifestyle significantly and everybody else also, we all need to um, adjust to keep something catastrophic from happening. And so from there, you know, if you think about how our emissions are broken down, um, obviously a lot of it is power generation. Um, I individually don't have a lot of control over that, but hopefully, you know, our leaders will start, um, well, they have started, but you know, hopefully we'll get to like fully renewable energy and stuff like that and then you know as you go down like transportation this is where i started is just a huge chunk of emissions as well because of all of our cars and trucks and and all of this stuff that goes into transportation and then even if you keep breaking it down you just individual personal car use is a huge chunk of that transportation emissions and this is something that you know individuals actually can have a big impact on in our everyday life how much you drive what type of car you drive if you drive at all or if you're prioritizing alternative modes so i've gone down 
this rabbit hole um, into why is it that, especially in America, all we do is drive cars. And that is the assumed like norm. That's the default. And why is that? So then I start looking at the history and understanding all of the, I consider them mostly to be adverse effects of prioritizing the car over basically everything else. And I've come to the conclusion that, you know, basically I view cars as, as overall very bad, even though they're a very useful tool. Obviously the, the, the ability to travel long distances very quickly and efficiently, relatively efficiently is huge for people who live in like rural or remote areas. It's very powerful. But um, if you look at the statistics from the, the, like the National Highway Administration, um, it's some huge, I mean, I'm not, I don't have all the statistics in front of me, but some huge percentage, like the majority of people's trips are less than three miles. And we use this 2000 pound car to drive us less than three miles to go grab a cup of coffee or things. So really there's this huge opportunity to reduce our emissions in a massive way. And then, you know, the more I get into this and read about the history and the effects of like, um, car deaths, you know, 40,000 people die every year from cars and um, air pollution, not just, you know, the effects of climate change, but air pollution kills so many people in America. And, um, and then from an urbanism perspective, the amount of space in our cities that are taken up by cars, um, so much so that, you know, the people, this, you know, the cities, I think my philosophy here with like new urbanism is that cities should be designed around people they're usually like pushed off to the side to these skinny little sidewalks and all of the room is given to these cars instead of the people. And so, yeah, I can, I can keep going on and on forever. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, about it. but like what, what part? Yeah. Yeah. Let's break it down. I, I we'll, we'll, we'll be a little bit more directed here. Let's start kind of early on. Uh, why was city planning more or less centered around cars? I mean, this is a historical fact, right? Yeah. A lot of the infrastructure developed, at a particular point because of some reasons. Let's, let's just start there. Sure. So um, if you look back like the uh, you know, 1910s, 1920s, when the mass production of the car kind of like, you know, it took off. We had, you know, the Model T and everything. And and it was, you know, the usually the way it's described is it's the successor to, you know, the horse and buggy. It's this huge technological improvement. And it is. But the you know, the issue is as it became into and was used on city streets is, you know, it's, it's much faster and, you know, it doesn't have like the knowledge of a horse, a horse will not run into things, but you know, if a driver isn't careful with the car, it will just run people over or run into things. And so there's actually a ton of, a ton of pushback in the 1910s, twenties and thirties, even saying like, you know, we don't want cars on our city streets because back then the city street was the public square. It was, it was just open for everybody to walk across, to use, to meet, to gather. Kids played ball in the street. You know, it was this public resource. And then these cars came in and were killing people, you know, left and right. Um, partly because, you know, we didn't have like traffic systems in place. Um, there weren't rules of the road and things, but there's actually this huge pushback. And then, over the years, um, obviously, the competing um, motivation there is the auto industry. They want to sell as many cars as possible. And so there's kind of these competing campaigns where 
the auto industry actually paints pedestrians, people who quote unquote jaywalk as being, you know, irresponsible citizens and and they kind of become the boogeyman. Whereas and they change the narrative to say, you know, streets are for cars. Um, and then the thing with cars is they take up more space. You kind of have to partition car space from people space. And so then you get suburban sprawl and everything has to be expanded to make room for the cars. Right. And I, I guess uh, there, there's a lot of things happening at the same time. The, the fact that industrialization was happening and in full sort of full steam or going into full steam at this point, and we have the resources to develop, right? Had cars not been the case, let's assume industrialization still kind of goes with the trajectory it did. And it, you'd still have, would you just have bigger and bigger cities? You'd have denser and denser sort of population? Yeah, which is kind of, uh, I think, the ideal scenario. I think um, in, in your talks, like with uh, JP a couple episodes ago that I listened to, you had some good conversations about, you know, really urban living is super efficient um and it's super valuable um you know it's become expensive now for another whole area of discussion like land use and how we build our housing and things but um you know in my opinion the ideal thing is for everyone maybe not everyone but you know for the majority of the population living in an urban core is really valuable you know you have the economic opportunity but not just that um you know, the amenities, the, the community, the, you know, the recreational ability, the access to medical services, like having everything around you is really valuable. And that's something that I really value. And I think it makes sense to kind of prioritize that type of structure in our urban planning. Right. And, and th- those arguments made a lot of sense, right? I mean, and mostly has to do with accessibility. Let's, let's, uh, let's, ins- uh, I guess, inspect the cost a little bit later, but sure. Uh, currently the infrastructure is such that, okay, there are these city centers and mostly people will, some people will live there. I guess a lot of people do, do live there, but a lot of people are going to be commuting from suburban areas that surround the city. And that surrounding infrastructure is mostly for vehicles, right? Mostly yep. for, uh, people driving their cars, right? For four seats is the standard, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm driving and three of my seats are empty and I'm yep. headed to the city center, I'm gonna park there. There's all these logistics of getting getting myself there. How do you sort of take that and start to uh, turn back the clock, right? Turn back the clock to people are actually walking in this space. There's a city center, there's a, there's a sort of, you know, there's a point of uh, yeah. community almost. Right, I mean, that's that's the what's so difficult especially about american culture is that like even even just like socially we kind of built this idea of the dream american dream is to go buy a house in the suburbs with a big lawn and your white picket fence and start your family there and and that is you know necessitated on this idea of having this car infrastructure and so, yeah, to the, how, how do we change people's perspective is, is an extremely difficult question. But I think it has to start with first focusing on the city itself. Okay. So like um, right now, it sucks to take the bus or take the train. I mean, I love it because I love transit and I think it's awesome. But, you know, it's inconvenient in a lot of ways. And people have these, uh, you know, negative connotations in their head, like, oh, if you have to take the bus or if you ride your bike, 
Um, I've started biking basically everywhere now. Um, and I think it's great, but again, people are, have these negative ideas about it, even though, you know, I always point to places in Europe or Asia or things where that's the norm and people love it. So it's not that it's necessarily bad. It's just kind of how do you change people's perspectives? And I think you have to start in the city itself and just improve those systems, make transit more frequent. Um, Cause if you have to stand around waiting for a bus, you're not going to want to ride the bus. Um, you know, make pedestrian spaces bigger and easier to access. And then the biggest thing, I think um, the biggest problem we have right now is building housing. We don't build densely and we have a lot of zoning laws and things that prevent people from living close to their work, living close to their kids' schools or things. Because, you know, we have like single family zoning laws that say you're not even allowed to build something with more than one living space in it if you wanted to, even if the market says that people want to live there, you can't. And that actually, you know, that's why we have huge housing prices, say in California or um, in lots of areas is because, you know, there's these huge economic hubs. A lot of people want to live there. There's a lot of great amenities, great weather. Everybody wants to live there, but we just can't build housing fast enough to keep up with demand. And that's why we have these insane um, housing prices. And right. so then the alternative is to just keep sprawling outwards, you know, yeah. and taking up more space. And the only way you can then get around is by car. Right. And it seems like we're pretty much still going down that trajectory, right? There is development. Yeah. There is further sprawl. I see neighborhoods being developed all the time and yeah. large single family homes. Yeah, absolutely. So like my big dream is that that would end and that people would, you know, want to move back into the city, but there's, you know, there's a ton of work, uh, to make that happen. Um, and it's easy to get discouraged, like? but I think the biggest thing that I'm always harping on is, is we really need more transit funding, more, um, like bike infrastructure, protected bike lane funding and stuff, because I do believe that if you have good systems in place, people will use them. It'll be a slow start at first, but then people will use them and they will realize, wait, this is great. I don't have to spend $30,000 on a new car and then spend, you know, thousands of dollars putting gas and maintenance into it and then spend an hour on the beltway stuck in traffic going to work. Like, I think once people get a taste of it, they'll really like it. But right now, most of our systems just aren't funded well enough to uh, be that successful. They're kind of like the, the last resort, um, you know, kind of safety net for if you can't afford a car. Um, right. I think it was very interesting. I, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, it seemed like ride sharing was going to help mitigate this a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Because, okay, my, my friends and I, we want to, we want to go out, do something. Let's all just carpool and we're going to take this, uh, Uber XL or whatever, and we're going to go to the place. Yep. That seemed way more efficient than each of us taking our giant car and parking at the place. Right. Yeah. So it, I guess there, there are, there, there is like a little bit of a, relief happening yeah there are benefits to that like you said especially if you're carpooling and going with friends um together that's an improvement on like obviously then if you each individually drove your own car and individually took up parking spaces um but the problem uh i mean there's a couple of problems that i see with like you know the uber model i mean one is that 
the, uh, half the time, roughly half the time, Uber drivers are just deadheading. They're just driving around with nobody in their car looking for somebody to pick up. So, you know, really, if, if there's only two of you getting in the Uber, then you didn't really gain anything because he was probably driving around for the same amount of time waiting for you to call him. Right. And then the, and then on the other hand is that, uh, you know, Uber isn't really profitable yet from my understanding. Like the only reason the prices are so low is because one, they don't pay their drivers very well. And, and they're, you know, dumping a ton of uh, like venture capitalists into it to make yeah. it just to make it work. So, um, you know, it, Uber should exist. Like it's a great resource to have, but I don't think it's going to be like a successful alternative or, or, you know, in the future, it's just going to be very expensive. Yeah. I'm, I, those are good points because I actually learned recently that Uber is not profitable as well. Yeah. For, for mostly the reasons that you were talking about. Yeah. Man, it's there, there's something to it though. Right. Uh, it's kind of a, okay, let's build bike infrastructure. Let's build uh, this other infrastructure that sort of helps with uh, me not waiting around for buses or whatever it is. It kind of, it's kind of hard to justify if, if people don't immediately use it or, or there must be some sort of a, a block. What do, like, what's the real blocking point? Right. And, and it's really hard to get people uh, to want to do it, like, as you said, because people will look at like the numbers of who's using transit now and say, well, there's not that many people. And we put in this new line and there are a few more people, but it wasn't that much. But everybody loves their cars. Look, look, this highway is full of people. Everybody wants to use their cars. And so what we do is we spend you know, countless billions of dollars on expanding our highways. Um, and a lot of times the reasoning for that from like your state department of transportation is, well, you know, it's so congested. If we add another lane, uh, we think it will uh, reduce people's commute time from A to B by five minutes. And so we spend so much money for these theoretically tiny improvements. But then in, in reality, what happens is, is this phenomenon called induced demand. You know, if you, if you expand your highway, then, you know, for a few months, commute times will go down. But then people have, you know, some theoretical limit of how much time they're willing to spend driving. And so if you expand capacity, then people will just drive more um, yeah. or they'll get a job that's even further away because yeah. now before it would have been a little bit past my threshold. And so we're, we're in this endless cycle where we keep expanding our highways, which are extremely inefficient. You know, like you said, like a huge, huge percentage of people when they drive to work, it's just them in their car with four empty seats. Um, and so in, in a dense environment or even a semi-dense like suburban environment as we have now all across America, it's just impossible even with this limited density to keep up with that demand in such an insufficient, in, in, in efficient manner. So I think yeah. the only way we can really actually cut commute times and actually address the clim climate crisis and, and improve people's lives, I think a lot is to focus on these alternatives. So what do, you, what do you make then of uh, sort of Elon's approach, right? Okay. Like, let's, okay, let's, let's work under some assumptions here. Let's assume sure. that everybody loves their cars and cars are this amazing thing. People spend, I would say, uh, be, right after your house and your kids, your car is your next biggest investment mm -hmm. for a lot of people. And people do it all the time, right? That's why new cars are being constantly pumped out. 
Elon's approach is maybe, okay, people love their cars. Let me give them a car. I mean, let, me, let me give you a car, but this car is going to be super smart and have the capacity to eventually drive itself. And furthermore, once there are enough of these out, perhaps they can communicate with each other and kind of get things really efficient. I mean, do you see that as a sort of legitimate approach to if you can't beat them, join them and then change them? Right. So, well, there's two things I want to address here. First, I'm, I'm going to challenge one of your premises, which okay. is um, I was I listened to this podcast uh, called The War on Cars. Yeah. And they're amazing. They're the ones that are putting all these crazy ideas into my head. But um, <laughs> basically, uh, they have this episode called, you, you know, you've probably heard the phrase, um, the American love affair with the car. And it's kind of this idea that, you know, you hear it all the time, that Americans just inherently love driving over any other um, any other mode of transportation. But, you know, they kind of trace that phrase back to its origin. And of course, it was like a marketing ploy from the car industry. But anyways, their their pushback is basically saying that Americans haven't really had any other options, any other choices in in many decades, you know, since we have adopted the car. So like, can you really say that Americans prefer cars because they're all driving cars if they never really had the choice in the first place? That's a good point. That's a really good point. Anyways, so that's, that's to start. But you're right. I think a lot of people do love their cars and they're absolutely resistant to other modes for a variety of reasons. But yes, so so this Elon Musk model of um uh right, if you can if you can have all of your cars like self-driving, um and you know, you just like call a car and it comes and picks you up, that's certainly an improvement. And I'm a big fan of self-driving cars because of like the the uh if you look at like the amount of crashes and things like humans are actually really terrible drivers and so if we can have fully autonomous vehicles that are even slightly better drivers than humans that is a huge win a lot less people die in crashes um you you eliminate um you know like drunk driving because you know you can get a ride home after you're drinking and you don't risk other people's lives and then also there's a ton of of further factors of like how much we spend on crash response and ambulances and things from so that would improve things a lot but in the end you still have the same space requirements you still have the same energy requirements to power the car like even an electric car if it's totally um, powered by renewable energy that's again it's a huge improvement Um, so like as you were saying maybe we can get people in the door with this and then slowly transfer them to other modes of transportation but there's still a lot of downsides and for instance like the amount of embedded carbon in what it takes to make a tesla um, even if it's running on renewable energy you're still outputting a lot of carbon just to make it and the batteries and all of that right and i think the argument ends up being sort of a time horizon if you use it for x amount of years it'll end up being net net better right yeah yeah but and then it's like better than what are we comparing it to? Yeah, we're uh, comparing it to an, uh, an explosion. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so it really requires a fundamental change in a lot of the way people are thinking. And obviously, I'm not going to convince everybody to ride the bus. Um, but I'm hoping that if I can 
you know, spread the good news and convince a lot of people that, you know, living in a dense environment is great. Um, and it gives you a lot of opportunities, maybe not during COVID as much, but, um, you know, even, even outside of maybe the ecological um, aspects, something we haven't really touched on yet, I think is the, the personal benefit is huge. And I, I love, you know, living, riding the bus, riding my bike, walking places. And I think there's a ton of benefits that people just don't think about because they're used to more of like the suburban lifestyle. Yeah. And I think, so yeah, your, your points are super noted. And uh, this is also something I talked about during the JP conversation, which, which was, okay, th these changes for a lot of people are pretty big, mm -hmm. right? Going from, I have my own car with seven seats to go ride the bus, right? That's a big change. And it seems like the most sustainable approach in terms of sort of converting people or sort of getting people to start thinking about this is to slowly kind of ease them into it. And uh, I, it's hard for me to imagine what that looks like because it seems like the problem keeps getting more and more out of control, right? Yes. The more sprawl you have, the more you need it. The more uh, job opportunities exist further, like farther away from you, the, the less likely you are to sort of forego that option, right? Yeah. Uh, you also aren't necessarily going to sort of pick yourself up out of this community where maybe your friends and family live and go to somewhere that's densely populated. So it's, yeah. it's these, uh, these solutions that take that into account that I think are the most interesting. Yeah. And like it's, you said, so you're absolutely right. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Th that there's like this, this feedback cycle, you know, what, right now we're, heading from my perspective, like totally the wrong direction. And it, it is, it's continuing to get worse. Um, and so that's why I think the, the power of, of showing people how it actually makes their life better. Like you're not making a sacrifice for the sake of some environmental cause um, is really powerful. Like building in those incentives. Right. Um, like well, I mean, you were saying. Let's talk about what COVID did, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people are working from home. Uh, I'm going to guess that probably for a while, I don't know if it's currently the case, uh, commute time was decreased exponentially in terms mm -hmm. of the, the total amount of commute time per individual, whatever it is. I wonder if it takes that kind of a shock for people to realize, wow, I am spending that much time in my car and all this extra time I have is super amazing. Maybe I can do something else with it. Maybe I can spend some time with my, kid, some time with my kids. Yeah, so so this COVID moment has been huge for this. And, and we've seen... Um, it's cities all across America, like um, actually closed down, or I like to call it opening up the streets to like pedestrians and people on bikes all around so that we have space to go outside and social distance. And because we all are working at home and we need space to get outside, we can't stay inside all the time, but also be safe and distant. And so it's kind of the first time in a long time where we've had this broad acceptance of reclaiming some land from that was just you know allocated towards cars and allocating it more towards people just who live in the neighborhood and want to get outside um and then similarly there's been this huge bike boom where at the beginning of the pandemic you know like all the bike stores were totally sold out of bikes because everybody wanted to get on a bike and go outside and exercise and it was a safe way to travel whereas like maybe if you lived in new york city and you were a little bit afraid of the subway like contracting COVID or something from that, then you would get a bike and you would bike to work. And we they built like pop-up bike lanes and things. So we're actually seeing that 
given under the right circumstances, people are absolutely willing to give biking a try and different things. Um, and COVID has kind of revealed that. And we revealed, you know, at the beginning when everybody stopped driving and you look at our emissions output and how it, it dropped a lot. And it makes you realize how much control we have. We kind of think of all of our emissions just kind of going up and up forever and we don't really, but all you have to do, I guess what I'm saying is it's totally within our power to drastically li limit our emissions if, if that's what we want to do. And right. it kind of reveals the power that we do have. Right. And, and this is kind of more or less what I was talking to JP about as well, which was how do you take that momentum? How do you take the momentum from, okay, hey guys, we have efficacy. We, have, we can have some self-efficacy in this global, this global climate problem. Uh, here's, here's some examples, uh, you know, pandemic, very sad time, but here's some of the things that if we sort of, sort of pan out and after the fact, look at what we did do that sort of were okay, right? We, 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 we cut down emissions or we cut commute time. People got to spend more time with their families, this kind of thing. How do you sort of capture that and then let that ease the transition into more sustainable living? Yeah, that it's really tough to do. Um, but I think it has to start with not just going back to normal, you know, and, and I think a lot of people, you know, that's what they keep saying. They want to go back to normal, which is understandable. We want the normalcy in a lot of ways um, to be able to go see our friends and family and do all the things we want to do. But then the, I think there are some things where we just have to take the lesson and learn, like maybe, um, you know, the city set up this pop-up bike lane, uh, you know, make that permanent. And then maybe somebody who started biking during the pandemic is going to continue biking for years to come. And I think that is true. And I think people do want that. Uh, but again, right now the infrastructure just isn't there. You know, it really doesn't feel safe to be on a bike on a city street amongst all the cars. Uh, right. We need the infrastructure to be there for people to continue what they've started in this, you know, unique time. Yeah. And I think this is, this seems like one of those things that could be a generational thing, mm. but that's two things I said there things uh, this, this is one of those times where the solution could be coming from the next generation right you're growing up used to being used to something very specific and that sort of informs how you uh, sort of, uh form your expectations later on right mm -hmm. if i grew up during this time and i don't have to uh, go to school in person i don't have to uh you know uh, take a bus to school whatever whatever it is i feel like there are these small shifts in perception that happen that are happening to the current generation that I'm interested to see how they pan out later on. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thinking back to my life, like, you know, growing up, I grew up in, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a cornfield, like it never even occurred to me that you would travel not in a car. And I think that's true of a lot of people that and having this time to kind of reconsider all the things you've taken for granted is huge and and especially yeah if you're young and like this is early in your experience of how the world works you start to realize that well the world works however we want it to work and so you know what objective do i want you know what are my goals in how we structure our society and and i think if the more people that are thinking that way and thinking of how do we make this system better for everyone you know that's really powerful yeah certainly because 
I mean, you increase the odds of someone doing something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. because and, and and the more um, like I follow on Twitter all the time, these different like uh, these efforts like uh, NIMBYs versus YIMBYs, which is the not in my backyard versus the yes in my backyard. These kind of like competing uh, movements where it's usually based around housing. We're saying like, if they want to build a big apartment complex, the NIMBYs will say like, no, I don't want that in my neighborhood where the YIMBYs will say yes. And like, it really comes down to if we can reduce the number of people resisting like density, resisting transit funding, resisting, you know, bikers having access to the roads. If we can reduce the number of people that are just against this and at least, at least let people understand like, okay, this is something that, should exist and we should allow people to live densely, you know, this shouldn't be restricted, then if you can remove that kind of opposition, it's it's hugely powerful because people do want to live, you know, the market forces and incentives, like people want to live close to the things they want to do. And if we kind of allow that to happen, then it will happen, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, so I don't, I, I kind of challenge you there because if we do look at market forces, right? I'm sure there are equal and opposite market forces to exactly the ones that you said, right? Where perhaps I'm a, I'm a property owner in a city and I actually mm-hmm. benefit from the fact that they can't make it more dense, right? Because like maybe I, I used exactly. to own property in Los Angeles <laughs> or something like that, or New York City. There is that opposition inherently there. Absolutely. So, so yeah, that is, um, that's kind of the, the crux of the NIMBY versus YIMBY. battle is that the homeowners you know if you bought a house in san francisco 40 years ago for like thirty thousand dollars and now it's worth millions of dollars and it's because as demand to live there has increased astronomically the amount of housing has not and so that is to your advantage um and so that's kind of one side and and you know my opinion i guess the way i look at it is well our population is increasing and as well as all of the other benefits of living densely, we need to allow people to live in these areas. And having these restrictive zoning practices and things is really uh, detrimental to society as a whole. Now, that's a, man, it, it, it's, it's definitely a claim. And I guess I haven't thought about it in a very nuanced way before today. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see the positives that you're mentioning. I really mm-hmm. do. I can see the value. I hate to commute. I don't want to spend two hours of my day commuting. That sounds awful, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't want to be commuting those two hours in a car that's f- completely empty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that seems kind of wasteful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I would like to bike, especially when the weather's nice, right? Absolutely. about seeing the sun, uh, being in the sunshine. It's just, it's so, it seems very difficult to decondition a lot of people to those expectations of, I need a car. I need to commute to work for an hour. This is because this is the way it is. Uh, for me, when I was growing up, one of the most interesting rites of passage was getting my first car. It was mm-hmm. you know a used beater car, but I had the freedom, right? I had the freedom to go wherever I want, which was getting groceries from my parents or whatever it was, but it was mine. There, yeah. There's something to that moment where I sort of expected it from there on out almost. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I had the same experience growing up um, and, and I loved cars. I still love cars. This is the thing, like, like I'm kind of a car hater, but um, 
you know, my, my dad was a car mechanic. I grew up around cars. Like I love sports cars. I think they're, they're awesome. They're fun. And then the freedom when you're like 16, I got my driver's license, you know, that's huge. But um, the way I think about it is, is, you know, when I have a family, I want them to live in the city, in an urban environment um, for a lot of reasons. But one of the big things is that it's, you know, when you're in a, a limited capacity to travel and you get a car, you think of it as this big boon, this big opportunity of freedom to travel. But the way I think of it is, well, really, all of your life up to that point, you were limited because you couldn't go anywhere unless you had a car. So yeah. my view is I want my kids to live in this urban environment where when they're of the right age, if they want to go down the street and play in the park, they can just go. Yeah. And they can they can meet other kids in the community. And like and, and this 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 gets into more like the psychology and like the social benefits of of living in a community where you're actually like a part of the community. Whereas like suburbs to me, this is again kind of like my personal preferences, but it feels very like stale and and isolated in that you generally don't know who lives down the street and you're all in your own little homes. If you go outside, you're only in your little backyard and you don't dare step on your neighbor's backyard. You know, it's very like segmented and it kind of plays into this whole like hyper individualistic mindset that Americans have. And so, so if I blow this up to like my whole worldview, it's kind of, it's very emblematic of, I think, a lot of the problems that I perceive. Wow. Uh, the thing that I immediately thought of was kids growing up in New York City before pandemic. Right. I, I met some, a lot of people who are from that time. And uh, it's very interesting to hear about their childhood. Mm -hmm. right? Oh, I, I had a sports event after school. I took the subway. Oh, uh, I really grew yeah. up on the subway. I had a fan for myself on the subway. It's a very, it's, there's a whole different level of development. And exactly, you're right. The amount of freedom that they have in terms of mobility, going to do stuff, infinitely more than, than suburbs. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, so it's like, it's just that mindset change of thinking like, you know, thinking the car is freedom versus thinking, well, the fact that kids can't safely cross the street in my neighborhood, in the suburbs, you know, that's actually a restriction of our freedom. Like th this is, you know, it's just like flipping that mindset. It, yeah. Yeah. Hey, the move in my opinion is to uh, take an old bicycle, convert it to an e-bike and just grab a helmet and let it rip. Yeah. E-bikes are awesome. I'm a huge e-bike fan because that gets, you know, a lot of people, you know, they're like, oh, I don't want to ride my bike and like get all sweaty or, or whatever. But e-bikes are so easy. You can go so far uphill, downhill. It doesn't matter. I love e-bikes. Yeah. It seems very thrilling. That's the I solution. Might, yeah. I might have to do that. There, there are uh, really interesting conversion kits where you can take, again, an old bike, uh, hook it up to the, the chain, hook up this electric motor to the chain. Mm-hmm. For a couple hundred bucks, you have an e-bike. Yeah, that's way cheaper. Cause like, you know, e-bikes can be a little bit more expensive, like, you know, like a couple thousand dollars or something for a nice one. Um, but yeah, if you could just like convert your regular bike, that would be huge. Yeah, there, there's a lot of cool technology like this uh, that kind of gets me excited. Uh, I remember watching some YouTube video or something about uh, mechanics in India are converting old cars into hybrids. So oh, wow. let's take an existing piece of infrastructure you know, just the car or you know, the car is a concept and just tweak it a little bit. So it's, mm -hmm. it does, it does a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. The fact that that can exist. There's a comma.ai, I think is another startup that takes more recent cars that aren't autonomous and converts them into autonomous cars. Right. Mm -hmm. This is the idea of let's make gradual change. There's, 
the like being gung ho about giant change is great. I think in the long run, but it has to start somewhere and it has to be in a very sustainable way. Yeah, this is where I have to catch myself because because I'm so far down the rabbit hole. I'm just like, well, this is great. You know, I'm just going to ride my bike everywhere, and everybody should do this. But you know, it, more practically, it, it, we have to start small. And and one of the big things is that um, a lot of people are doing is like, even if you just reduce your household from a two car household to a one car household, you know, that's a huge impact. If you like replace a car with an e bike or something like that. And it's actually possible even in a somewhat sparse, sprawly suburban, you know, landscape to significantly reduce your car ownership. Um, you don't have to necessarily totally change your lifestyle, move into the city. Uh, you know, you can be gradual steps, um, even just, you know, replacing a lot of your trips that would be in a car into an e-bike. You know, it can make a big difference. And that's how we will actually get to where we want to go. It's not going to be me telling you you know, totally change your life today. So, yeah. yeah. And I, this is why I thought Elon's thing was kind of cool. It's it, it sort of redef- in his words, right? De- redefines the expectations for what it is to drive a car. Mm-hmm. Right? This, I mean, that's more or less in terms of uh, internal combustion to electric. Yep. Supposedly it's going to be so much better that when you do it, you're, you, you question how you ever thought that this thing was okay. Right? Yeah. In the same way, maybe if I start riding an e-bike tomorrow, I think, wow, why was I driving my car to the grocery store when I could have been doing this? This is awesome. Exactly. Yeah, it's got to start like that. And and another thing that makes me think of is like um, uh, outdoor dining during this pandemic. How much, especially, you know, like in the city where there's not a lot of space, that people have taken over the parking spaces or even into the street. And they have these beautiful now streets full of people that are able to safely eat outdoors during the pandemic. And like, I've heard a lot of people say like, wow, this is great. I don't ever want to go back. And yeah. it's being able to make big change. And then people will realize, I think, because I, I don't view it just as a, and I keep saying this, I don't view it just as like an environmental benefit that like it feels good. Like I actually enjoy living my life this way so much more. Yeah, I'm right with you, man. The community aspect is giant. Yeah. I think that's, that's what it's all about, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Man, the, the idea of uh, putting outdoor dining into the streets is really cool. I was in Colorado a little while ago, and mm-hmm. they, they, because downtown was more or less closed off and people couldn't eat indoors, they blocked off all the streets in this uh, large area. Yeah. It was a Europe-style people just eating in the streets, and it was yeah. and it was so cool. But it could only exist because it was downtown, right? Right. Which is why I'm I'm always drawn to density. Like there's just so much more possibilities, and and I think the like getting back to like the the cultural like bumping into random people on the street and meeting random people, or like I was talking to a guy at the bus stop the other day, helping him understand how to use his phone to uh, like um, f- track his route or where the bus is and stuff, and it's just like. If, if I was driving to my destination, I would not meet a single another human being. I would be isolated in my little car and I would get to my destination. I would buy what I was going to buy or whatever. And then I'd get back into my car. I would, you know, be angry at somebody else who's isolated off in their car that I can't talk to because they cut me off. And then I get back home and, and it's very, it's very isolating. And it kind of enforces this, like this uh, barrier between me and like everyone else. And it's like, you know, the others. And, and I think all of this really plays into, you know, the American psyche and, and why it's, 
honestly, part of why it's been so hard to combat this pandemic is because people aren't thinking in a way of considering their neighbors. It's, it's more individualistic. So right on. What do you think about van life? Oh man, I really wanted to make a van. Um, in, I guess it was in college. Like I was on the, the subreddit and like looking at all those vans, it looked amazing. Um, and honestly, I would still love that. But, um, you know, in the end, that's a hard, hard jump to make to, <laughs> to yeah. actually live in one. Yeah, that's one of the sort of big step change kind of things in my life that I've been thinking about. My expectation of what it means to be in a home. Yeah. Right. I think, I mean, van is kind of interesting, but also communal living. Communal living is one of the things that I discovered kind of early on, but probably towards the end of uh, college that I can't undo. It's too cool. It makes too much sense. There's, there's the community, uh, the sort of intermixing of ideas. It just, it just, it just uh, makes too, it makes too much sense and I can't undo it. Yeah, absolutely. That, the community aspect, that's probably like my number one difference from like, from where I grew up in like rural farm town to and well partly is because uh, something I haven't mentioned is like I was homeschooled so I wasn't even in like the school community and like how isolating that is versus living in a big city and like yeah that community is so valuable and I, I value that so much wow so you were you were homeschooled I was homeschooled um all the way through like I never went to like a real a real school quote unquote until college until college yeah wow and you went to Ohio State afterwards. Yeah. That's so, so, I mean, that is a testament, I mean, first of all, to my mom. Like, the fact that she, she like, taught all of us kids, like, we're, my siblings, we're all very smart. And it's a testament to my mom. Like, she's amazing. But also, um, we did, like, a post-secondary enrollment option in Ohio, where in high school, we we're actually taking college classes. Like, I took some at Terra Community College and then at Bowling Green State University, you know, while I was still in high school. And so that really prepared me to actually succeed at Ohio State. Yeah. Wow. That's super cool. I think you're uh, the first person I've spoken to in a long time who's been homeschooled. Yeah. And, and I don't know, I have a lot of, uh, my, my idea of homeschooling is very, very positive and negative. There's a lot of positives and there's a lot of negatives. And am I glad that I did it? Like, I feel like it prepared me well academically. I feel like I was smart and prepared to go to Ohio State but then like I'm saying like a lot of the restrictive the restrictions that I faced as a kid like it wasn't the greatest experience as a child but I mean that's a whole nother discussion of like education and all that but (laughs) I mean let's do it because people are being forced to almost be homeschooled right now right right and it's so it's so hard for me like especially even before the pandemic, like it's so hard for me to have like opinions on education, like high school, middle school, like how should kids be taught these things? Because I don't really understand a lot of the ways that kids are taught these days, especially in like a classroom environment. So it's so hard for me to come up with opinions on that. So then at the same time, like I understand it during COVID, it's very tough for these kids to have to be staying at home and doing online learning. But to me, I mean, that's just like normal, like you do your work at home. So it, I almost feel like I'm I'm not empathetic enough to the struggle that is at home learning, but it's it's very interesting. What are your thoughts? Oh, I think we lost audio. Are you still there? Oh, I'm here. 
Okay, there we go. So you went, you, you kind of went the opposite way, right? You went from homeschool to giant university. Yeah. I guess for a lot of kids, they went from school with my friends in person to homeschool. Right. I kind of right. want to, uh, what are the, what are the benefits? I've mostly heard the negatives, like mm-hmm. the quality of education is less because you're not with your, your peers. Uh, you know, the videos, asynchronous, blah, blah, blah. All of these things are more or less negative, but from the perspective of someone who's been homeschooled, what are the, what are the positives? What can people learn from this experience? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Um, I guess, so, so the, the positives from my experience were that like, I mean, it all comes down to like, my mom was just this great teacher in that, you know, as we learned things, we could kind of learn at our own pace. And, um, like I was like several years ahead in math in middle school and stuff. And like, I could just keep going because, you know, I wasn't, there was nobody else there. My mom just kept teaching the next lesson and the next lesson, as long as I was understanding. And so in that way, I was able to really excel academically, but that is a very specific case where a, you have a good teacher at home yeah, um, that can, that has the time and the energy and bless her heart, you know, my mom did all that. And I think the struggle with um, pandemic learning is that, you know, now the parents are like working from home, a lot of times both parents, and then the kid is trying to learn from home by themselves. And the teacher has to manage all of these kids. They're distributed. You don't get that same like one-on-one time. And the parents are obviously very stressed with COVID, especially like if they lose their jobs or like there's so many extra factors that make it so much more difficult. Yeah. So I'm going to backtrack on my previous excitement. All of your points are super valid and noted. I think I was, I got kind of lost in the sauce there (laughs) because, uh, yeah, you're, you're totally right. You had the phenomenal teacher who was your mom. You also had a curriculum that was tailored to you, which is tailored to you. Exactly. We still have this, uh, in, in, in the current, sort of online teaching it's still the old curriculum it's still one teacher it's still everybody at the same pace and now all these other factors that you're talking about people being worried about their jobs so i rescind i totally rescind. <laughs> yeah it's definitely a tough tough time and i think you know some people uh, it may work better for and but in general uh, from what i've heard you know it's it's definitely tough tough times yeah wow i feel kind of bad now no you shouldn't but I guess so that that kind of deconditioned me to that way of thinking because I, I wasn't really even considering those things for some reason. Sure. I mean, that's the thing. You just have to like, it's great to have these conversations, you know, and talk through it because, you know, most of the time for me, like my initial instinct or my initial response is probably going to be wrong. So it's helped so yeah. much to talk through this. Yeah. Straight up. I, I'm wrong a lot. <laughs> uh, I do this very interesting thing. I think it's interesting where uh, I'll uh, record myself. Whenever I think I have a good idea, I'll mm-hmm. take my front facing camera and just record myself. And I'll listen to it a week later and I'll laugh at myself. <laughs> the idea was so ridiculous. Yeah. But during that time, it felt so real and it felt like it was the best thing in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's uh, interesting to see that evolution. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, I think it's really important though, to like not be afraid to like there, you're kind of containing it to yourself. Yeah. Um, but even like, just calling up a friend or whatever, like be, not being afraid to just say what's on your mind, even though it might be stupid. Yeah. And like, 
just like go for it just say like oh this is just an idea i had but like you know being able to record it and come back to it later or tell a friend is really powerful for sure yeah hey i mean it was for this is geez it's why it took me so long to start the podcast right Mm-hmm. Uh, I was afraid. I was afraid to express my opinion. I was afraid just to, to say something that I, I just said because I'm going to uh, be sort of outcast because of it. Yeah. That fear. And I think it wasn't until after step zero, which was just throw up an episode and get things rolling that I could, I could finally grow from it. Right. I can yeah. go listen to the previous conversations I have and figure out what went well and what didn't go well. What did I thought was great and what wasn't. And uh, it's just getting better and better. And yeah, that gives me opportunities to talk to you who I, I don't know who, that I would have talked to. Right. This is great. And, and that, that ability to grow and like, that, that's what I really enjoy about like anything that I do. I love the feeling of like improving and growing and learning and gaining knowledge or skill. Like that's just fun. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm right there with you. Do you, do you have any uh, random hobbies? that you're, you're kind of excelling in like this yeah what that makes me think of is uh i play a video game called rocket league Ooh. and i spend way too much time on this video game but um you know it's so addicting because i it's this game that has like this insanely high skill ceiling so it's really just the more time and effort you put into it like you just keep getting better and better and better and so like in the in the last season um i made it to like the top rank it's like a competitive esport or whatever so i made it to like the grand champion rank and i was and like i never would have thought i got there all i was doing was chasing the growth like i was like oh i'm gonna get that next rank i'm just gonna get that next rank and like i spent way too much time on that game it's so much fun what's the percentile that puts you in so i'm in the top one percent basically of all players that's wild that's actually insane (laughs) and i think there's a very fascinating point here well before i make that point how, how much time do you put into it? You say a lot of, a lot of time. What's a lot of time? Well, okay. So on Steam, um, I'm approaching 3,000 hours in, in Rocket League. Wow. Total. And this is over. I mean, I started playing it in college probably like, I think four years ago. Uh, so it's over four years, but still like, you know, I, I play it very consistently. Yeah. That's a lot of time, but you're getting better and you are the top 1%. So there's something. Yep. <laughs> uh, I want to dig into it a little bit more, but there's a point here that's really cool. And it's being process focused, right? And being growth focused implicitly carries with it getting to grandmaster, right? That's not the goal. That wasn't the goal. It doesn't sound like for you, right? Right. That's powerful because it means I should focus on the, the steps. I should focus on getting better and better and better, not on some abstract goal that likely is going to change. Yeah. But it's funny that you say that, that it has changed. They actually changed the ranking system. So um, uh, Grand Champ uh, got split up and they basically added more ranks above that. So now I'm not even the top rank anymore. I mean, still, if you look at the distribution, I'm probably still like top 1%. But yeah, like it's really just kind of an abstract goal. And But to really, it's really important that you're A, enjoying what you're doing and you're, again, just like focused on improving. And, and that's what makes something rewarding is seeing your improvement. Like yeah. you said, that's very true. It's, uh, I think for a lot of things that are really valuable, it's hard to quantify that improvement from my experience. Yeah, that's the benefit of this game. And that's why it's so addicting is because you can, you know, you're literally given a number and a rank and so you can ex- exactly track your progress. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, now let's dig into it. What's the premise of the game? I've never actually played. 
Okay, so it's it's basically just uh, soccer with rocket powered cars. Okay. So so it's in like this kind of contained arena with walls and a ceiling, and there's a ball, and then you drive your car around and try and hit the ball into the opponent's goal. But um, you have rocket powered boost, and you can pick up like boost around the field, and you fill up your boost tank, and then using the boost, you can either go really fast on the ground, or you can actually point up and like fly around. Your car can fly using your boost and hit the ball. But but what's amazing about this game though is it's like entirely mechanical. Like you just you actually have to you know individually rotate your car to hit the ball a certain way and have like complete control over this object. And if you ever play the game, like it's it's really tricky at first, but then you start out just being able to like turn left and right, and then by the time you're able to do like aerials and fly through the air or all these crazy different mechanics you can learn, it's just so rewarding. Um, now I want I want you to take me through, the, through that process. You're playing on the computer, right? So you have a mouse and keyboard. Yeah, I actually play with a controller. Um, some people do play with mouse and keyboard, but okay. uh, generally, most most Rocket League players play with the controller. Okay, that's interesting to me because I was uh, under the impression that uh, mouse and keyboard gives you more fine-tuned sort of control. Right. So, like, especially for first-person shooters and things, like most most of the time when I think of like PC gamers, they're usually playing like first-person shooters and stuff. Like that's yeah. absolutely true. But Rocket League is such a unique game in that you kind of need that analog um, to be able to steer and, and flip and turn. You kind of need that analog stick, like the ability to fine tune. Whereas uh, if you're playing keyboard and mouse, you know, you can either go full left or full right by pressing the buttons. Mm. Um, so there's That's that awesome. aspect. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. I want, I want to get into the mind of someone who's starting and then getting to the point where you're at now. Right. Sure. What does that look like? Do you just you just get good at focusing? Do you get good at uh, the fine sort of uh, motor function of your thumbs? Or I mean, do you notice yourself using the control and seeing the control differently? Yeah. So so I guess I'll start at the beginning. Like I was not a big gamer before this. I enjoyed video games. Uh, when I growing up, I didn't have a console or anything. Um, like I wasn't a big gamer i've never owned an xbox or a playstation but you know once i got my own laptop and i was able to play games and i enjoy sports and i really enjoy competition and i enjoy video games so like rocket league kind of perfectly put all those together and so like you're saying like at the beginning you're super awkward and you're just figuring out the controls um and then at some point you know as you once you learn how to steer like most people can steer on a video game without really thinking about it you just left or right and then your ability to jump and do flips and then as you're going like each time you learn a new mechanic it feels really awkward and you fumble through it but then it becomes like second nature so now when i play i'm not thinking about the buttons i'm pressing at all you know i'm like i'm thinking of myself as the car and like i'm thinking okay i need to go this way i'm thinking of how what what path i need to take whether i'm need to get back on defense or whether i should push forward on offense like you know as you improve your mindset totally you know diverges from the minutia of your controls to like the larger picture of the strategy which then again it's it's a lot like a regular sport in how there's this competition which is what i love like i love playing sports and all that i love that competition wow that's that that's a very good way of putting it so you you're sort of you diverge from the minutia of the controls to actual strategy and it seems like in terms of actual strategy there's infinite possibility yeah right? That's that's awesome. And yeah. uh, have you gotten to a point where you want to execute something and you just can't keep up, or can you only conceive of things that you can execute? No, yeah, that's 
I think honestly, that's one thing that stays constant is that you have this idea, especially like if you watch like the professionals, like the professional esport players, like they can do all these crazy things and thinking like, oh yeah, if I could just turn my car in that way and boost into just the right position, I could do that too. But then, you know, in the moment you like, you go too far left and your car is flipping the wrong way and it's, it's very difficult. So I would say like most of the time, you know, the, the idea in my head of what I want to accomplish is always a little bit better than what I actually perform on the field. Yeah. yeah and I guess that's what you need to get better. Yeah. Yep. And because if it's the opposite, then there's no growth. Exactly. Yeah. So you kind of have to always push yourself to try things. Like I go for these like ridiculous shots sometimes because, you know, if I don't try it, I'm never going to be able to hit that in the future. So, yeah. Yeah. Do, do you uh, find yourself using Rocket League as kind of an, an analogy to uh, other, th- other parts of your life? Yeah. I mean, I never thought about it, but now that you say that, like, it does pop into my, my head a lot when I'm thinking about other problems or things. Uh, it's funny. You just like triggered this whole, yeah, I think I do. I think I do. There's something to uh, the process where you said, where you don't think about the minutia, where it's so internal to you. It's just second, kind of second nature. You're not thinking about mm-hmm. it to where I have to believe the brain is smart enough to apply that to other problems. Yeah. Right. And I guess that's all happening like subconsciously. I didn't even like, like it's not specifically like controller, no, like how is my thumb moving, but it's more like this general application of it, it's in a way it's like abstraction. Like we were talking about, like the intricate underlying uh, implementation isn't the focus, the being able to like abstract out and, and think bigger of, okay, what am I doing with this implementation? Yeah. That's wild. I think <laughs> for, for me, that 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 sort of process-oriented growth, that would be a big one because mm-hmm. I would go to a different problem, a different hobby, and just think, all right, this is how I'm going to treat it. I'm going to grind, 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 and the results will happen. It's yeah. not, I want this result. I mean, there is initially that stage of, okay, that, that's a nice goal. I'm going to get there. But that's that's not the, at least for me, it's not the real focus anymore. Yeah. It used to be, and I think that's kind of limiting. Right. And I think the key is, you know, I've found this game that I really enjoy and it's, and it's fun. So like any, any goal that you want to achieve, you kind of, like, I wouldn't say that I gamify everything that I do, but like, if you can make it something enjoyable along the way, then you can actually get into that grind without it feeling like a grind. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. This is a great way of putting it because uh, I feel like I've come to the conclusion that the only way only Anyway, one of the best ways to actually sort of improve is to grind. Yeah. At some point, you're going to have to grind. Yeah. If it, any, any skill you want to develop, for sure. Like, whether it's whether you believe, like, the 10,000 hours rule of thumb or, like, whatever it is. But you, you got to put in the, the time and the work and, yeah. and hopefully not, you know, kill yourself doing it. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that your, your mind is always a little bit ahead of where you actually are, that's mm-hmm. kind of cool. That tickles me. I got I to gotta think about that one. <laughs> Dude, right on. This has been awesome. I feel yeah, like this has been great. Definitely learned a lot. I'm uh, thinking about graphs. I'm thinking about cars. <laughs> I'm thinking about Rocket League, <laughs> which is about cars. That's right. I replaced one one aspect of cars in my life with another aspect of cars. <laughs> Plot twist. <laughs> so I guess uh, I, I, I don't even know how to sort of frame this. It's just 
big changes. I feel like there are a lot of big changes in a lot of people's lives and it's mostly been sparked by COVID. Yeah. So um, like going back to the beginning of our conversation that the RQL technology that I've been working on for the last two years, um, that's all kind of my work on that is all coming to an end at the end of the year. So I'm actually looking for like a new opportunity now. Um, and I'm like in the interview process at different places and then also looking for a different position inside my current company. So lots of big changes coming. Um, and I really don't know where I'm going to end up, but it's kind of exciting. I enjoy yeah. like these transitional periods. There's that uncertainty. Uh, yeah. What do you, what do you want to work on? What, what, what is your sort of vision for the future and how do you, how do you get there? Yeah. Um, it's tough because like if, if I were to try to like tie in my, my software experience with like what we talked about with my love for urbanism things, like I've been trying to find an overlap in the software world where I could work on those types of problems. Um, and there are companies out there that do that. Uh, you know, it's just kind of hard to find one where my skill set is directly applicable. So like that would be like the awesome dream. Um, and maybe someday I'll get there. Um, but I'm also just looking at other opportunities in, in tech in general, um, like cybersecurity companies. Uh, I mean, just this week, we've been revealed that, you know, we've been hacked in this immense proportions. And like, you know, cybersecurity is is absolutely going to be this huge uh, issue, you know, for forever now into the future. And uh, that'll be cool to get in on the ground floor, but we'll see. Yeah. Hey man, I'm excited to see where you end up. Thanks.